How's everyone doing today? Everyone, everyone survived the storm? No, no trees through houses, anything? No, no, good, good. Everyone fared better than the point did it, sounds like. <laughs> uh, so, today we are kicking off our post-Lent series where we're going to look at some of the essential core truths of theology. We're going to kind of walk through them for us to understand, but also for us to be able to take out when we're being missional out in our community, with our friends, with our coworkers, family, so we can take these ideas and try to relate them, try to, when someone asks you a question, be able to have something to say about it. And so that's what we're going to kind of walk through today. So the series as a whole is going to span seven weeks. We're going to cover topics such as the Bible, covenants. We're going to look at each member of the Trinity individually. We're going to look at sin and salvation. There's, there's going to be a lot there. We're definitely not going to look over all of it because each one of those could honestly be a seven-week series in and of itself. So we're just going to kind of breeze through some of it, hopefully inspire you to do uh, to dig deeper. Um, to, as a companion to this, Lauren has put together a document, a book, kind of PDF a book, that we're going to be sending out on Mondays following the Sunday, so tomorrow. And it'll cover kind of, if you want more information on the topics we're going to talk about that particular week, that'll be sent out to everyone. So if you, there's a particular topic you're like, ooh, this is really interesting, you'll have resources to dive into it and have fun with it. So I'm, I'm really excited for this series. I think it'll be really fun. So to start with, we're going to start with the Bible. That's generally a good place to start for any discussion, but especially one for, for theology. So for us, the Bible is our sole authority on God, on theology, on everything for us. It, if it's not found in the Word, we shouldn't be using it. We shouldn't be relying on it. Everything we have has to come from the Bible. Now, I'm going to tell a story, and... I would never do this again, so don't think this is a good idea, but um, one of the first times I got asked to speak at a youth camp, um, I was in college, and it was the church I'd, I'd gone to growing up, like, hey, can you come in and speak to our youth camp? And their topic was kind of, was the Bible, this, you know, the importance of it. And so for my first talk, I made up a whole story. I made up an Old Testament book of the Bible. I made up a king, I, and I didn't pull it out of nowhere, like, you know, I pulled things, so it was, at least had a, a, a good message to it, but the idea was that no one called me on it. No one realized I was making an entire story up, and at the end, I asked, like, hey, all right, so there's some really cool verbiage in this story, why don't we turn to it and read it together, and just sat and watched while everyone was hunting, you know, but no, I would not do that again, because I realize now that's a, a terrible thing to do, but the idea was... Don't take my word for things. Don't take your favorite podcaster's word for things. Look it up for yourself. Find it. If it is not in the Bible, if it is not explicitly said there, we, we shouldn't be believing it. So, and there's no excuse to not have a Bible now because you can have it digitally on your phone. It's super easy. That's a great way to have it with you all the time. So anything we say, anything we believe about Jesus, about God, about our theology, about anything to do with our faith, has to come from the Bible. That's where it has to come from first. So then that kind of begs the question, what is the Bible? Well, for us, from a generic standpoint, the Bible is these books broken up into a, an Old and New Testament. Now, this is where you get into some different branches of 
theology of Christianity. So the kind of big break is Protestant religion, Catholic religion, two different faiths with two different Bibles. So for us, our Old Testament is 39 books. It's the same 39 books that is the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, exact same. Catholics will add um, some additions to some books and a series of uh, extra series of books. These are sometimes referred to as the Apocrypha. Uh, Orthodox will add a few more books. Ethiopian Christians will add a few more books. So for us, as Protestants, we only hold these 39 books to be divine, to be part of our canon. Now, that's not to say the other books are completely useless. They're just not used for preaching, for teaching, for talking about God. For example, like First and Second Maccabees there is a great history book. It tells the story of the Maccabean Revolt, like some really good history, that those books kind of tell the story between the Old and the New Testament. But it's not part of our canon. It's not part of the divinely inspired Word of God. So that's just kind of a little bit about the Apocrypha. So if, if you hear someone talk about that or mention a Bible that has extra, you know, different books in it, it's probably this, because different lines of Christianity have different canons. Um, yeah, okay, back to here. So this is our canon. Now, what we have was written, edited, stitched together by, honestly, probably hundreds of people over a very, very long period of time. So the earliest kind of date we have in the Old Testament for an event we can pretty precisely date is the reign of King David. This is probably 1000 BCE, or 1000 years before the birth of Christ is King David. From contextual clues there, we know there was probably some writings around before this time period. Some of the older books, some of the, the early books are probably swirling around in some form at this point. So they're even older than this. Our latest date for a book in the New Testament is 110 CE. So, you know, 70-ish years after Jesus, as we have the kind of the last book in our canon written. So just those dates, that's over a thousand years from, from, from of time period that these books were, were put together in. So that is a massively long period of time, and a massive, a lot of hands are involved in doing this book. And so this book, our, our, our Bible, is isn't one kind of monolithic book, right? It's individual small books here. And each one of these has an amazingly different story to tell. Each of our Bible is composed of personal stories, of national stories, family stories, histories, cultural memories, laws, songs, praise songs, angry songs. Our Bible has an entire book of someone basically swearing at God for, you know, however many chapters. We have prayers. We have royal record books preserved. Letters. We have open letters to churches. Letters to individual personal people. And so much more. Our Bible has a litany of genres in it. And because of that, it is such an amazing thing for us to have with us every single day. It is amazing how at any one point, no matter what you're going through, you'll find something that is applicable to that situation. So I love the way 2 Timothy kind of describes what the Bible is. So all scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, 
so that everyone who belongs to God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, it has some applications of the Bible here, you know, teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and I love how all of this is for us to go out so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But what I want to focus on here is this top line here. All Scripture is God-breathed. I love this phraseology, this way to talk about our Bibles. Now, you may notice that I don't use the word infallible when I talk about the Bible. That's a very common word a lot of people talk about. The Bible is the infallible word of God. I tend to not use that word because of kind of the reputation it's grown to gain. When a lot of people say infallible, they mean perfect, which the Bible is perfect. But they take it to mean, well, it needs to be a perfect spelling. It needs to be a perfect history book. It needs to be a perfect biology book. It needs to be a perfect everything. And that's not what the Bible is intended to. So I love this phraseology of our Bible, our scripture, is God-breathed, God-inspired. Because do you know what the other thing that was God-breathed is? Any guess? Any guess? Any guess? Us. When God made Adam, it talks about God breathed life into Adam. And so I love this idea that we're God-breathed, and so the word was to get us through this life is God-breathed. So I, I just love that, that parallel there. So our Bible, inspired, breathed, given to us by our God. And so the logical question becomes, can our Bible be trusted? Which slide am I on? Okay, so can we trust our Bible? How can we trust our Bible? A lot of it comes down to the Holy Spirit. Because we said, our Bible is created by hundreds of hands over thousands of years. That's potentially a lot of mistakes, issues, things could happen. It's the Holy Spirit. Our Bible is the amazing work and gift of the Holy Spirit. Its authority doesn't come from the people that wrote it, the people that translated brought it to us. It comes from God and the Holy Spirit. I love the way the Westminster Confession talks about it. Quick side note here, confessions are a genre of writing where people talk about their faith, confess their faith. Reformed theology, which this is a, a reformed church, ECO is a reformed denomination, loves confessions. They use them a lot, and so you will periodically see something like this, like the Westminster Confession is one of the biggest ones. It's just basically a big letter talking about faith. But I love the way they talk about Scripture. The authority of Scripture depends not on the testimony of any human or church, but wholly on God, the author of it. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the Word of God. Our Bible doesn't gain its authority from us, from how well we can preach it, how well we can relate it, how we can out-logic someone into believing something in it. Our Bible gets its authority from God, the ultimate creator of our scripture. And I love that, because I think that is freeing for us. We don't have to try to prove something in the Bible to someone else. Its authority comes from God. We just have to tell the story and let God work in that person, that situation, whatever it is. So, one of the issues I think that can come up, we kind of touched on this earlier from our Bibles, is us putting expectations on our Bibles that was never meant to be. 
I used the example earlier, our Bible's not meant to be a perfect history book. That's not its intent at all. Do I have? Okay, no. That's not what it's there for. It's not meant for us to be a perfect history of the times of the ancient Near East. As someone who used to do history for a career, I really wish it was. That would be amazing. But that's not what it's there for. It's not meant to be a perfect biology book. It's not to be a, meant to be a science book at all. But yet we try to turn it into that. It's not to, meant to be a perfect book on government. Yet a lot of times we try to turn it into that. There's a lot of things the Bible isn't meant to do that we want to try to make it do. And I think that's where a lot of the issues come up. A lot of the problems people have with, with the Bible is trying to make it do things that it was never intended to do. And now this brings up the idea of, well, are, this is a common question you, I get, and I'm sure you get or will get, is, well, aren't there a lot of mistakes in the Bible, right? How can you trust a book that has mistakes in it? And from a literary level, there, there are some, quote-unquote, mistakes in it. But one, one big one. What sea did Moses lead the Israelites through? Was it the Red Sea or the Reed Sea? The text itself says the Yom Suf, the Sea of Reeds, which is a place. But then later stories reflecting back on this event refer to it as the Yom Adam, the Red Sea. To complicate things even more, there's other times, especially in Kings, where they're talking about um, battle works being built they refer to the Yom Suf as the Sea of Reeds, but they're clearly talking about the Red Sea. So what, what's going on here? Did our writers of Exodus put the wrong sea? Did the later people reflecting back remember the, the sea wrong? Well, the big question I would pose is, does that diminish the story? Does that diminish the story of Moses leading the people out of whatever sea. Because that story is about God's faithfulness, about God protecting the people of Israel, God leading Moses' faith to, to trust God to lead the people. So the intent of the story, again, isn't a perfect history book of, was it the Red Sea over here or the Reed Sea down here? The intent of the story is faithfulness. Another question, since it's just after Easter, this is actually a question I got last week. Who was at Jesus' tomb, the empty tomb? Guesses, guesses. Yeah, yeah. So Matthew says there was two Marys and one angel there. Mark says there was two Marys, Salome, and one angel. Luke just says the women and two angels. John just list Mary and two angels. So is this a problem? What, what, what is happening here? Well, I think this is storytelling. So think about going to a baseball game. There was just a baseball game yesterday. Different people will focus on different elements of a baseball game. If it's someone's first time at a game yesterday, they might be really excited to say they're, you know, a, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But say, say one person is like a Little League pitcher. 
they are going to hone in on the pitching and get really excited. And so when someone asks them about the game, that's probably all they're going to talk about. If there's someone who's going, who cares nothing about baseball and just going for the food, they're going to talk about the nachos, the restaurants. They're, they don't care about the game. They're going to focus on that. Someone at yesterday's game, whoa, did I go out? Oh, someone at yesterday's game with, with the weather swirling around might only tell about the weather. So you'll get multiple kind of different accounts of this baseball game because each individual person is focusing on a different element, a different theme. And that is so true of especially some of our New Testament books, especially the Gospels, that they're telling, you know, the same basic story, the story of Jesus' life and ministry, but they're focusing on different elements of it. And again, this goes back into our idea of we want the Bible to be a perfect history book, but it's not. So for one gospel, having Jesus flip over tables makes thematic sense at the beginning of his ministry. Whereas another gospel uses it as the climactic end of his ministry. Because they're highlighting different elements, different themes of Jesus. So those are just two kind of examples where people kind of can puff up sometimes. Like, well, there's, there's mistakes, there's, there's things wrong, right? I think it comes down, like we said, trying to force the Bible to do things it's not trying to do. Because ultimately, what is our Bible trying to do? It is, according to Second Peter here, we have, the prof- we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Prophetic word, the Bible. To which you will be good to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. The Bible is to be our lamp shining in a dark place. What do lamps do? They guide. But not very far. It's the, kind of the frustrating thing about lamps, right? You ever try to walk with a lantern? It, you can only see one or two steps in front of you. So it's, it's guiding you. It's showing you where to put your next faithful step. Lamps can comfort. And when it's dark out, you don't know what's out in the dark. Having a lamp can be an extreme comfort, just like our Bibles can. They can give us extreme comfort to know the creator of heaven and earth is with us. A light can protect. In the darkness, that's where enemies come out. If you're lost in the woods, a lamp, a fire, can save your life. Our Bible can protect us. Our Bible and lamps can also be a signal, drawing others to you. If it's pitch blackout, ooh, there we go, it stopped. If it's pitch blackout, there's one person with a lamp, you're going to go to that person. You're going to be drawn to that person. Our Bibles can do that. If we are the embodiment of what our Bible's trying to do, trying to tell us. People will be drawn to us. They'll be brought into us and we can continue to love and to show Jesus. That was just a real quick run-through of our Bible. There's so much more we could talk about, but the main thing is that our Bible is God-breathed, given to us, through the Holy Spirit, for our betterment, for as that, I should have put it here at the end, but I'll go back, for as this verse, nope, this one says, so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every good work. 
That's what our Bible is. It's our lamp leading us, guiding us, comforting us, and protecting us. Join me as we pray.